Examining Ethics with Andy Cullison is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute. Jen Everett, welcome. Thank you. It looks like we've given you the hosting reins for this show. So I know who you are, but can you tell the listeners who you are? So I'm Jen Everett. I teach in the philosophy department here at DePauw, and I co-direct the Environmental Fellows Program. So what are we doing here, Christian? Well, Sandra, about a year ago, I interviewed a scholar named Kyle White. Um, Yeah, my name is Kyle White, and I work at Michigan State University. I hold the Timnick Chair in the Humanities, and I'm an Associate Professor of Philosophy and Community Sustainability. He's a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, and a lot of his work focuses on the particular effects that climate change is having on indigenous communities. And because we have at DePauw, an expert in environmentalism and sustainability, I thought it would be cool to talk about Kyle White's ideas with Jen Everett. Ah, uh, now I get it. <laughs> I was not exactly sure what you meant when you said we're handing you the host duties. Um, <laughs> I, I'm like, holy cow. <laughs> now I get it. Now I get it. I'm being Andy. You're being Andy. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm honored. You're also yeah. being ambushed, as it appears. <laughs> A little bit of that. <laughs> Great. Are we are we ready to go? Are we ready to try this like brand new way of doing the show? Yeah, I'm yes. totally game. I'm awesome. ready. The thing about climate change is that we often talk about it as if it affects everyone equally. But that's not true, is it? No, it's not. Um, Where we live in North America, it's often communities of color that are affected more by climate change. And according to Kyle White, indigenous people experience environmental problems more severely than other populations. For a lot of populations, uh, climate change is something that they think will affect them in 50 years or even 100 years. But indigenous people are actually on the front lines of dealing with climate change now. A lot of that has to do with the fact that they live lives that are very closely connected to the earth and natural resources, but also the case that uh, not of their choosing, they live in these very small, constrained communities uh, that are very much, uh, you know, smaller areas than they used to live in. And so their range of adaptability to climate change uh, has been lessened. I kind of intuitively knew all of that going into thinking about this this idea. But when I talked to Kyle White, um, he brought up a particular way that climate change affects indigenous populations. And um, so it affects what he calls um, collective continuance. So collective continuance is a conception of what makes societies uh, flourish. For many indigenous people, you know, especially my tribe, our entire way of life, you know, from government to culture, uh, was based on an acceptance that change was normal and that change was always going to happen. 
Uh, and so the entire society was built on that. It wasn't a resistance to change. It was actually embracing the reality of change. Because of colonialism, we had to change very quickly and incurred harms that we probably wouldn't have incurred were we to change at a pace, you know, in, in a way that allowed us the capacity to avoid harm. So collective continuous sense is just this idea. It's, it's, it's what goes into making a society adaptive to change in ways that avoid uh, preventable harm. And there's different aspects of that, right? So one is that you have to have the capacity to make difficult decisions in your society, right? So you have to address very hard challenges without you know, destroying your society. Uh, another aspect is you have to be able to work well with groups of people that aren't part of your society, right? And all the various hybrid relationships that go on when societies intermingle with each other. And the other capacity, right, is you have to have a capacity to have ongoing traditions that are subject to uh, to change and adaptation where you're able to pull the good things from the past, but also reinvent new things in the future, right? So those are your ceremonies, you know, those are your, your diets, you know, your other traditions that are make up what makes, you know, life good. Well, if that's what we can understand as, you know, flourishing indigenous society, right? Well, what makes that work? And for a lot of indigenous people, all of these capacities I was talking about are based on whether people have appropriate moral relationships, uh, not just with themselves, but with plants and animals, uh, ecosystems, depending on what the cosmology of an indigenous people is. So collective continuance is like whether a group is resilient to change? Like they can change with their surroundings? That's my understanding yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, He's saying that collective continuance is this ability that indigenous peoples have to adapt to change, right? Um, and so I thought like, well, isn't that a good thing when it comes to climate change and like colonialism and all this stuff? But what he's saying is like, um, we have this ability to adapt to change, but what happened was that colonialism like came along and and imposed all these harms, and we had to ad adapt really quickly, quickly more, more quickly than we wanted to. And that the same thing is happening with climate change, where um, change is happening at just too fast a pace. And so that's affecting indigenous people's um, collective continuance. I don't care how much resilience your community has if, you know, if people come through your community to destroy it, then it's good to have some depths of reservoirs to to um, recover, to heal, to um, to continue. This is the the continuance part I get. Uh, but but when changes are undermining in in a really really profound way, rapid way the basis of your ability to survive and hold together and have a healthy community, then that's going to be, um, that's going to definitely challenge. So I have a question about what he was saying, like, and all of this collective continuance is based on a moral relationship between plants and animals. And um, people. And people. What, what, what does he mean by that? He actually expanded on that. So I'll play another clip because 
Nestled in his idea of collective continuance is another idea about the importance of maintaining relationships, um, like the relationships you were just talking about, Sandra, and also responsibilities towards those relationships. And responsibilities are systematic. So for a lot of like Potawatomi groups, right, you have, you know, tons and tons of different responsibilities depending on your clan, depending on where you live, depending on your, you know, uh, more extended and more local family relationships, depending on what kind of, you know, land or region you come from. And there's just all these systematic responsibilities that, you know, uh, are supposed to be working in a way that maintains, uh, you know, this overall collective continuance. And so I, I've looked at a couple of different qualities of relationships that make it so that we're able to continue these responsibilities. You know, so one of them is the relationships have to involve, you know, high levels of trust. Uh, so if you live in a society where, for example, the the members distrust the political leaders, then you're not going to be able to make difficult decisions. And so it's very hard to continue responsibilities both of members to leaders, but leaders to members if there's no trust. He describes like um, a system of responsibilities where pe- there are like reciprocal responsibilities. Like, So I'm imagining like a responsibility to like the animals that you might hunt but is there like responsibility back from the animals? Like what? I'm confused. Yeah, I asked him about that actually. Um, so, so like, um, you know, he he would say that there's a responsibility of humans towards water to take care of the water and keep it clean and not have like oil like spill into it because and then but that there's also a. Um, there's a responsibility going the other way, which is that the water hydrates people and helps us clean ourselves. Um, so there's like a kind of back and forth of responsibilities and there's like a ongoing relationship there and that colonialism and climate change are like disrupting that relationship. I have to say that there's a, there's a hesitation I have about everything that we're talking about here that I want to try and get out and then you guys can figure out how to how to capture it. So in particular, the place where I was beginning to get a little bit itchy is the, you know, what do we have to say about the relationship between indigenous humans in their communities and the fish and the trees and the water um, the systems of nature on which they depend. And I find myself probably like many people wanting to imagine an indigenous worldview, how it personifies, does it personify the natural world? And so is that how we make sense of this idea of reciprocal relationships and so on? But I'm just some, I'm hesitant about that because I think we can so easily do this simplifying romanticization that, you know, comes from some like Disney Pocahontas kind of context. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, like it just probably needs to be said. It's like three white ladies sitting yes. talking about, um, you know, climate change and indigenous peoples, right? And right. so in rural Indiana, right? And in, uh, yeah, within a, a, a sound booth. Um, right. right, yeah. Um, yeah, so. But I still, I don't know. I want to push forward. I want to, yeah. I want to make sure I understand what he's saying because I think I was just really taken by my conversation with him. Yeah, and I, and I feel like we have a responsibility to try to understand what he's saying, 
but it is really good to acknowledge that we're going to, because we come from this Western view of ethics, we're going to, we're going to mess up. Yeah. And, and so like if we can flag something and be like, I'm not sure he would think about it this way. Yeah. Yeah. But this is how we're going to try. <laughs> right. No, I, th- yeah. I think that's, I think that's right. So I want to return to Sandra's question about reciprocal relationships because Kyle White and I actually talked quite a bit about that. One of the important things uh, among many others about reciprocity is that it suggests that there is a constant need to be learning about the things around you. So like in our traditions, for example, water has a really important role and that, you know, people in our community see water as having kind of its own personality, that different bodies of water have different personalities. So when you think of, you know, somebody or something having a personality, right, that's somebody or something that you want to get to know over time, that your perceptions of that, you know, personality are going to change and hence your attitudes will change and hence the nature of what you owe that person or or being uh, is also constantly changing. And so I think one of the important things about reciprocity is it, it ensures that we're always very humble with respect to what we don't know about you know bodies of water or other people the idea of reciprocity and 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 its connection to care indicates that we're always kind of in a state where we you know it's bad if we you know pretend like we fully know what's going on and so it's also connected to a kind of humility uh and in a lot of indigenous approaches to thinking about stewardship and thinking about reciprocity um you know the idea is that when you think about you know how do i um uh, you know, think about my relationship or my society's relationship to the environment. And it's one where really the environment, the plants and animals, the ecosystems are ones that in a large part dictate how we respond. It sounds like reciprocity is sort of like a humility um, where you treat um, objects and animals as if you don't understand them completely. And so there's like a, a care that goes into how you treat objects and animals because you can't fully understand them? Question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> it's common in a relationship that we take to be reciprocal to think the other has... Um, their own independent experience and mind, values and needs. And, uh, and I don't just know what those are. Um, we have these um, ways of, of being helpful to each other, but we don't just assume you will be my helper, right? That's not a reciprocal relationship. So the humility of this other person has another uh, a whole, their own whole set of um, experiences and needs and um, constraints and all of that that I, do, I just don't have perfect access to. Mm-hmm. Part of the deal is that we know that our friends are all different. They have their unique 
needs and personalities and events and stress levels and they're and they're different and so what goes for one does not just go for all and it's so much harder when you think about animals too because then obviously there's even more that you don't know about what Mm -hmm. their constraints are and how the environment is currently affecting them and all that stuff and that just made me think of like the hesitancy sort of that he describes in assuming things about animals is not something that I think like settler settler culture has, which is like, it's almost the exact opposite of like, assume everything will be fine unless (laughs) otherwise noted, you know? So like killing tons and tons of bison And it's just like, that'll be fine, right? You know? Like, there's none of that humility in relationship with animals, at least in that that instance. Yeah, I think think settler culture is particularly bad at coming to the, coming to the environment, coming to animals and plants, and having this, like, sense of knowing what's happening, right? And I think um, the world of science often has this problem of, like, well, no, like we know what's happening there. So of course we're going to do this thing because we know we know about the cellular structure of this plant. The particular piece of kind of, it's not just Western science. It's not, um, it's not just American settler culture or whatever, but it's, it's a, a worldview about the way that nature functions um, that is sort of the prevailing one in mainstream dominant white culture or whatever um not even white culture but a dominant view is that there are these regularities in nature um that are fundamentally different than the way um humans are right so we are each unique and different but one beetle is the same as another beetle one ash tree is the same as another ash tree one you know, deer is the same as another deer. That notion of there being and 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 any body of water is going to follow the same physical laws. Um, now, there's a level on which that doesn't seem that's not crazy and that's not necessarily arrogant, but um, it it is a really different way than we tend to think about people on a common sense level, and. I think it's a it's a very cool stretch to begin to think about individuality in the non-human world. It's weird because looking at a human being, like if you zoomed into our neural network, you wouldn't be able to see that we have consciousness. We just know that we have consciousness because we can chat. And you know what I mean? Like we can talk to each other and find that out. But like, root like the roots of trees have like the same kind of neural network pattern that they're sending signals to one another and they're chatting and they're talking but zoomed into that we don't we're not like oh yeah trees have consciousness or we assume that they don't but there's no way (laughs) there's no way to actually know that Uh but we do assume that they're not you know yeah i think that what you're suggesting is um appealing to me that one of the fundamental moral responsibilities we have is not to be arrogant right this um that humility is kind of 
a core virtue, a core uh, moral demand, right? If we, if we want to avoid wrongdoing in the world, um, the the assumptions that we make about whether we are or aren't affecting anything of significance need to be continually challenged. I'm immediately overwhelmed <laughs> by the amount of destruction I personally cause on a day-to-day basis and how much that would change my life to be like humble towards the environment on a daily basis. I don't know. I don't I I'm not sure that I find it that way. It I find I can I can understand it because the idea is like everything toward which I need to be mindful or about which I need to be humble is another potential demand on me. And especially if we think about morality and being a good person and all of that as about the constraint on what we would do with our own self-interest if left to our own devices. And we, then, then every new moral demand is somehow a weight upon me. But that's not the only way to think about ethics. And, you know, even Aristotle or... In the, in the virtue tradition, even in the Western tradition, there's a, a way of thinking about ethics as being um, self-expanding, right? Being, uh, being a matter of growth. I'm becoming, as I become more mindful to other things, I'm not, it doesn't cost me. It, it awakens me. It, you know, it strengthens me. So I want to talk about this idea of, like, the structure of the world affecting your ethics. Yeah. Tell me if I'm mischaracterizing what you just said. Right. Okay. That in some ways there are structures in place that affect how you can behave ethically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so Kyle White brought up this idea in a really interesting way um, because he talked about the preventable harms that colonialism imposes on indigenous peoples. Issues like climate change and other environmental problems are are not just sort of things that are felt economically by tribes, but they're things that actually erode the fabric of our society. And you can look at them in a very detailed way and their interaction with colonialism as things that really do unravel our trust, our redundancy. And this is why they impose preventable harms you know, on our society. When he was talking about that, it seemed like colonialism was in some ways eroding ethics or um, like eroding the possibility of ethics. So I asked him about that. As Native people, we don't trust the, the settler society, right? It's very hard to have ethical diplomatic relationships because all the cards are stacked against us. In fact, because of the situation that we're in, it's oftentimes very good to practice distrust you know, actually to cultivate distrust because there's many things that you don't want the settler society to know. Um, you know, for example, if you're exercising a, a particular treaty right, um, you know, oftentimes as Native people, we emphasize the legality of those treaties because they were ratified by Congress. So a lot of times the goal is to act in an adversarial way, in a legalistic way, and not in a way where we're actually trying to, you know, educate and celebrate with <laughs> the settler society, but what our traditions are, and what their traditions are. <laughs> 
it, right? And it's not to say that education is not a key thing, but oftentimes it's not a good strategy. I just thought that was very interesting um, that he, this idea of trust that he brought up and that because colonialism completely eroded trust, it took away this very important part of like their ethical life. When, when I listen to what he's talking about there, um, I'm hearing about the articulation of cultural harms, harms to uh, cultural norms um, and uh, the fabric, right, of, of a people that is really multifaceted. It's part of everything and from day-to-day behavior and the food and the, and the rituals and the um, relationships between um, generations and all of this and, and humans in the land, right? Um, the other thing that I hear there is that part of what a culture's identity consists in, its continuance, is... Um, as you put it, right, is is about our ethical norms. And and so, you know, in an ideal world where everything was just and fair and people um, had a history of treating one another with respect and uh, dignity and we didn't have a history of colonialism and oppression and that sort of stuff, then the the standards of expectation among people and within a culture and across cultures and so on, presumably would be very high. I think there's a a lot of work in feminist philosophy on this, where you have relationships of hierarchy and domination. The same kind of um, uh, trust and caring and giving and generosity and so on that you might expect between people who respect each other on an equal level just are not the right expectation. It's not, you don't want people to be self-sacrificing within a context of abuse. It's just like, if you're put into a situation where when you follow the rules that society has given you, you are forgotten or killed in the case of like indigenous people and people of color and people of color. And what that dominant culture has done to you is that it's stripped what's right and wrong into now what, what allows you to survive might be what you've never considered to do before. Maybe lie, cheat the system or in, uh, in other ways, try to survive. And that just struck me as such, a different type of harm that I've ever considered before. I mean, the one thing that I I feel some desire to push back on is the notion that um, that there isn't already um, virtue and morality in these acts of resistance that wouldn't be necessary in more ideal circumstances. It's courageous, one might say, to not trust where you've been told you must always be trusting.
So when I talked to Kyle White, um, he told me that indigenous communities often have a fairly different way of looking at environmental conservation and stewardship. And he was saying that one of the ways that indigenous communities approach stewardship differently is by using this way of thinking called care ethics. The idea of care ethics, I think, is an important one overall in ethical theory. And feminist philosophers have created, you know, extremely important body of literature on care ethics. I initially became attracted to the idea because I noticed that when indigenous people were talking about and writing about and practicing their own ethics, that they oftentimes use the English language word care to describe their basically their approach to how to live in the world and how to live with the land, how to live with plants and animals. Wait, so what is care ethics? Whereas some of the main bodies of thought in, in ethical theory put the emphasis on, say, consequences of our actions, so the morality of what we should do, the f- core thing is make the world a better place. That's one way. That's a consequentialist way. Or the, or the core of morality is to do one's duty, what's intrinsically right, um, and avoid the things that are intrinsically wrong and sort of a matter of rules. Uh, or um, in, in a virtue approach, right, the main thing about morality is to be the best kind of person one can be. In care ethics, the, the center of gravity is uh, the maintenance of relationships, is the maintenance of um, one another's well-being, our fundamental responsibility isn't make the world a better place, but but care and maintain the network of relationships on which we all depend. And really quick, let's hear how Kyle White de- defines care ethics. Okay. And so what I've come up with is that uh, from an indigenous perspective, right, a a care ethics is one where you see yourself and the plants, animals, and ecosystems around you as part of a system of reciprocal responsibilities, and that you can understand the nature of these responsibilities in the same way that we understand uh, kinship relations uh, or family relations where really the, the goal is to not only understand what your responsibilities are, but how they, they change over time as those you have responsibilities to also change, right? As they get older, they change their goals or what they're doing. And also this idea that plants and animals and ecosystems, right, we're involved in a caring relation because we don't just think of them as sort of inert objects but we think of them as having some kind of agency. Now that doesn't mean it's the same kind that humans have, um, but it is much more than objecthood. Uh, And so there too, you get a strong sense that it's a a caring relationship. It's not just a kind of control over a neutral object. And so I think you see a lot of indigenous traditions, you know, certainly not all of them, but who use terms like guardianship, stewardship, caretaker, Uh, to describe um, how they feel that they relate to the plants, animals, other beings, ecosystems around them. I just thought it was really, it was really cool and interesting to apply care ethics to thinking about the environment. Um, Because like, just in general, when I think about environmental ethics, like I immediately get overwhelmed and I go kind of like the most simplistic route, which is like, I'll just change my light bulbs or like, I'm going to stop using uh, plastic bags. Um, and so like thinking about it, thinking about the environment in terms of care, just opened my mind up to like 
kind of a more holistic way of thinking about stewardship and the environment. Yeah, my favorite part of it, as I understand it so far, is that it exists in a system. So yes, it's a reciprocal relationship between maybe just two things, but as it exists in a system, which I think closes like really important loopholes in my understanding of it. Like I was trying to think of it in like an outside of an environmental situation. Like if we're thinking about, let's say a financial scandal. So like maybe if you just think of a relationship approach, then you might be encouraged to lie for a friend or something to help them cover up something because you care about your friend. But like because that part of the system is included so that it benefits everything in the system that's like no longer acceptable. That's how I'm thinking of it at least. Like because it's a dedication to one other relationships between two things, but then as it benefits the whole system, I feel like that is a really holistic way, like you said, to approach ethics. What I heard was Kyle talking about um, modeling ethics in relation to the natural world on families, the language of stewardship and guardianship. Um, that's language we use in relation. And he, he also talked about sort of relationships changing and developing over time as members of, say, a family mature. So my, my responsibilities of care with respect to my daughter at eight years old are different than they were when she was six years old and they were when she was two years old, right? The, the things that it's right to do for her are different now than they were then. Um, so, so the content of what I'm, what I'm obligated to do has changed over time as she has changed and our family system has changed, right? So our, our family is the system in, in this case. But I think the point that you're making, Sandra, about um, being required to take a kind of systems approach and not just a sort of one-off, what is my, how do I care for, I as an individual care for that individual, and that's all of what care ethics is about. I think you're right that all the best versions of care ethics require that we take a larger systemic perspective on uh, whatever relationship we're talking about. Right. Because, yeah, I was just trying to think of an example that challenged the sort of like loyalty as best policy kind of example. Mm -hmm. But Um, it's a... And it does. Yeah. It does challenge that, I think. It's a stereotype of and, and not an not that hard to understand a stereotype of what care ethics is about mm. that it's it's always about personal relationships and maintaining them at all costs in this sort of one-on-one kind of way um, i think some of the early criticisms of fair, of care ethics kind of interpreted it as that sort of thing like my friend takes precedence over the impersonal world of uh of politics or or justice or mm. whatever and yeah, and I don't see it like that at all because of that inclusion of the system. Well, and and for me the keyword, so for you the keyword might be system, but for me the keyword is responsibility. Mm-hmm. That if you bring in responsibility to a relationship, that kind of puts it in a whole I don't know, it makes me think about it completely differently. And and what you were saying about like your your daughter, right? You it's not just about loyalty and love and like 
hugging her, it's about your responsibility to cultivate certain ways of thinking about the world in her, right? And yeah. and that responsibility entails some hard things sometimes, right? Right, like, right. I mean, I think this is one of the things that uh, one of the things that's exciting about care ethics is that it um, it really is generated out of close attention to the the moral dilemmas that arise all the time in the realm of the family. But anybody who takes family relationships seriously is familiar with the dilemmas of how ought I to act in this case? Am I am I doing my duty by, you know, being supportive in this case? Or am I am I shirking my duty by being supportive in this case of what what the other family member wants, right? So that those kinds of dilemmas are um, are rife in family life. And a nice model, I think, as Kyle is saying, for thinking about um, our relationships with the natural world. One, one form of relationship that's a clear antithesis to care is a relationship of use, right? So if I think of my my child or my partner as tools for my ends. This is, I don't have to work very hard at showing how that's not a caring relationship with them. Yeah, because, and that, you just totally hit on something that I find so problematic about, um, so I'll just use the specific example of about the way, you know, the media in the United States tends to talk about the environment, right? Um, The story is usually you know, we should take care of this body of water because if we don't, it's going to cost us, you know, there's some projection, it's going to cost us over the next 10 years, $23 million. So shouldn't we take care of this body of water because it's going to cost us, right? And and I love your sort of like, that, that care ethics just like obliterates that, right? Because it's like, like, we can't always frame our relationships with the world in terms of capital. Like, like what a limited and way of looking at the world. <laughs> Um, the way of thinking about the value of the natural world is is always coming up in uh, in my courses on this stuff, of course, because I also do environmental ethics. And um, you know, you can instrumentalize nature economically. That's definitely one way that we do it. It's not the only way we do it. We also, um, you know, just to think of nature as being the place of solace for us in a non-economic way is now there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that if it's if it's not the only thing if we think look the value of 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 those woods is what they give to us when we go there to experience it um but a non-instrumental approach a more um caring approach is going to try to decenter the use even even non-economic uses um from are from our thinking not that that's there but it's not the only thing that's so hard for me like i think i'm able to do to separate myself from an economic use for sure but from a personal use because walking in the nature park and being in the nature park is so central to my mental health it's really really hard for me to not approach the nature park as a space for me 
you know, but, I think I have a lot of difficulty with it. Okay, so a little bit of a challenge here. I can't think of my relationship with my daughter as not being totally enriching and fulfilling for me. I can't think of it as being, it's all about her benefit and none of it comes back to me. This is the reciprocity thing to come back to Kyle, right? I mean, there, it's not that the benefit to you isn't something that you should take seriously. If anything, we should pay more attention to the ways we're enriched by our connections to others, including non-human others. But that's compatible with there being more to the story. Well, I think when I hear that, though, that like we're in a relationship and we were part of this like thing together, my mind jumps immediately to like Jainism. <laughs> like I operate in extremes exclusively. I guess so. So like I'm like, should I be sweeping the ground in front of me to make sure that I don't kill any bugs or like can I eat from, like, maybe, big factory farms? Maybe, <laughs> maybe, well, okay, yeah, there's a pretty big experience. I mean, maybe what Christian was pointing out is that uh, some things are developmentally appropriate for, for kids and some things are, um, you know, ecologically appropriate for being. So there's plenty of death and killing in the natural world. And there and it you could say it's sort of inappropriate to put... Um, uh, an absolutist uh, respect for the rights to life of every individual being um, that that'd be like, I don't know, like expecting something developmentally inappropriate from my daughter. Right. Um, that might make, make some space for we're natural beings too. Uh, we're not, we're not gods. Uh, we interact in the natural world as consumers of it. Um, but that doesn't mean that anything goes. Like, go factory farms, yay. <laughs> so one of the things that I think I'm going to take away from doing this episode is um, to just keep Kyle White's idea of approaching the world with humility in mind. Um and Jen, you you spoke about that a little bit too, and and mentioned that um, you know approaching the world with arrogance can lead to many problems. <laughs> um, and so, so yeah, I think that's what I'm going to take away is to try to bring to try to bring to my relationship to the environment a whole lot more humility and a whole lot less arrogance, um, and a lot of that. I'm just going to have to unlearn, right? Because part of being like a middle-class white lady living in the United States means that I've got a lot of arrogance kind of embedded in my brain um, when it comes to thinking about the environment. Um, so yeah, that's what I think that's what I'm going to think about. How about you, Sandra? I feel like I have a lot. I've learned a lot in just this little time. I think the whole notion of care ethics feels like when you, you know, when you hear something that you're like, I kind of believe in that. You got a little fire in your heart. (laughs) I got a little fire in my heart right now for care ethics. I'm just really into that idea 
of thinking of your individual relationships with people and with the environment as part of a system that is just giving me so much life right now. <laughs> but that also means I'm going to continue, I think, to struggle because I'm, I have such an extreme personality that I'm going to oscillate probably between some extremes for a while before I land on what is my, what is my part of the system. And how do I, how do I have this re- reciprocal relationship with nature that isn't me focused, but that also isn't Jainism? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's probably what I'm going to do next. I like that. That's pretty nice. Usually when um, I think about and teach around climate ethics, a lot of the focus is on the responsibility of polluters and um, sort of mainstream, big, you know, hegemonic institutions of power and industry and culture, so mainstream culture. Uh, and the, the question is about the weight of responsibility of the contributors to the problem. So climate change is a problem because... Uh, rich countries and uh, middle-class individuals and so on are, are contributing so much in the way of emissions. And the focus is really then on um, us, again, the sort of dominant group. And what thinking about uh, collective continuance does is kind of decenter that. So the ways Christian was wanting to investigate that concept like what is Kyle trying to articulate about one of the costs of climate change that we don't always attend to and that's pretty interesting that's pretty interesting and not the standard way I approach issues of environmental justice To complete your ambush of the day, (laughs) to come full circle, if you were to write a review for the show on iTunes, what would you say? Yeah, like if you were to log into iTunes and like rate and review the show, how would you approach that, Jen? So so you must sometimes get people in who say like really witty, like, listen to three white ladies (laughs) in... In central Indiana, try to get in the head of an indigenous scholar and solve the world's problems. Something like that. Could, yeah, that, that, that kind could of thing you're talking about. Yeah. Five stars yeah. or one star. <laughs> Five stars or one star. Could oh. go either way. Oh, yeah. That will depend on how well you edit. We'll see. <laughs> Good Lord. Okay. I like that you're holding us to, st- like, you're not going to let us get away with anything. Holy cow. <laughs> Well, because the thing is, even if you don't listen to the show through iTunes, um, like rating us there and reviewing us there is super important for our visibility. Um, And so that's like, you know, that really helps spread the word about the show. Yeah. Or you could tell a few friends about us. That'd be really helpful, too. And if you're trying to get into contact with us, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. All the channels. All at Examining Ethics. We also have a regular old email address. It's examiningethics at gmail.com. We love hearing from you guys. Some of you um, have reached out to us about episodes in the past, and we always love it. And Jen, 
thank you so much for joining us today um, and for sharing your wise words with us. Thank um, you. No, thanks for having me on. This is this is super fun. I hope I hope I didn't screw it up so badly that you won't have me back. You definitely didn't no. screw it up. <laughs> no, this was awesome. Thank so, you. Yeah, yeah that's fun. That's it, guys. That's our show. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Examining Ethics. Wait, 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 turn over. <laughs> Examining Ethics with Andy Collison is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Sandra Burton and Christian Weishart produced the show. Our logo was created by Evie Brogius. Our music is by Corey Gray, Blue Dot Sessions, and Minden, and can be found online at freemusicarchive.org. Examining Ethics is made possible by the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Special thanks to Jen Everett for joining us on our discussion today.